The scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 46, beginning at verse 1 and reading through chapter 47 and verse 12. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his seed he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamu. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered thirty-three. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezir, and Shillam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own seed, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob whom came into Egypt were seventy. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. 
When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood before him Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number of their little ones. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, illuminate unto us the paths of righteousness by your word and spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, The Lord of the Rings is one story, even though it's often separated into three books, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King. And when reading the books or watching the movies, it can feel as if you're just leaving off somewhere because you have to and perhaps in a slightly unsatisfying way. In our recent studies in Genesis, it seemed like the stories are so closely connected that we're having to break up the flow of one large story. And that's basically true. Genesis 45 ended with Israel's declaration that he would go to Egypt and see his son before he, Jacob, dies. And chapter 46 continues the story from that very point. But what's before us this week? What's taking place now that Joseph the Messiah has been resurrected and revealed and has sent word and sign back to his father Jacob that he's alive? Israel, Jacob's name of victory, his national name, started on his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. Beersheba was located on the southern border of Canaan. It was on the way to Egypt, but this isn't the first time this location is mentioned in Genesis. Significantly, Isaac dwelt at Beersheba, as we read about in chapter 26, and what happened there. Yahweh met Isaac there, reiterated the promises he'd made to Abraham to bless him and multiply his seed, and Isaac built an altar, a place of worship. Not only that, Isaac made a covenant with Abimelech, the Philistine king. And who were the Philistines related to? The Egyptians. Abraham also had a similar experience at Beersheba in chapter 21, making a covenant with a previous Abimelech as well as worshiping Yahweh there, even planting a tamarisk tree as a designated place for worship. 
But Beersheba was also where Isaac, Rebekah, and their sons, Jacob and Esau, were dwelling when Jacob left in chapter 28 to go visit Uncle Laban, along the way having the vision of the stairway to heaven. It's no accident then that Jacob, that Israel, makes his way to Beersheba as he goes to Egypt and that he has an encounter with God there. And notice his purpose for going there, to offer sacrifices, more literally, to sacrifice peace offerings. That's the kind of offering he's to make here to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, why might Jacob do that? Well, because of what Yahweh told Isaac back at the beginning of chapter 26. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go to Egypt. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. So based on this information, the famine that Jacob is now encountering is the third famine that the patriarchs have come into contact with, have had to experience. And Isaac is expressly forbidden from going to Egypt. And Jacob might be rightly wondering whether he should go to Egypt or not. So he sacrifices peace offerings and in visions of the night, similar to the language we read of in Genesis 15, Yahweh comes and speaks to Israel. Remember the peace offering is a meal where the worshiper eats with God because he's at peace with him. And God is confirming that he's at peace with Israel, with Jacob. And notice that the narrator has used the name Israel so far, but then when Yahweh speaks, he says, Jacob, Jacob, he he addresses him personally and not as the leader of a nation. And this call and response is reminiscent of the Mount Moriah episode when the angel of Yahweh calls out Abraham, Abraham, as he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac, to which Abraham replies, here I am, behold, it's me. The language is identical. So God tells Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt For there I will make you into a great nation. And what this indicates to us is that what was forbidden for Isaac to do is not forbidden to Jacob. And what a wonderful encouragement this would have been to Jacob. God God speaks to him new promises, which really are reiterations of past promises. But isn't it often the case that faith needs regular reminders of the truth that it already knows? Don't you often find it helpful and encouraging to be reminded anew of old promises? So God tells Jacob he'll make him into a great nation. There's a level here dealing with great national concerns. There's a corporate aspect to this promise. But then here are the personal elements that are added in verse 4. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. I myself... The language is emphatic. God will go down with him. He'll be Emmanuel to Jacob. He doesn't just send Jacob to his death in Egypt, but he goes with him, even goes before him, even as he's done with Joseph and through Joseph. And this Emmanuel theme and promise emerges again in Exodus 3.12, when Yahweh promises his presence to Moses at the burning bush. And it appears again in Joshua 1.5 when Yahweh promises to be with Joshua as he'd been with Moses. Later in Israel's history, when the nation of Israel goes into the Babylonian exile, another form of Egypt experience, we read in Isaiah 43.2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
And of course, in Matthew's Gospel, in chapters 1 and 28, Jesus is Emmanuel and promises to be with his disciples even to the end of the age. So God promises his presence to Jacob and also that he would be brought back again to the promised land, fulfilled when Joseph commands that Jacob's bones are brought back. And Jacob will see his son Joseph before his death, for it will be Joseph whose hand will close Jacob's eyes when he breathes his last. But still more, underlying these promises to Jacob is even the hope of the resurrection to come, as the writer to the Hebrews would have us surmise in chapter 11 of his letter. God will bring Jacob up again, and not just his bones back to Canaan, but he will be raised to live in the true fatherland of the new heavens and the new earth. Well, in verses 5 to 7, we see that Jacob sets out from Beersheba, that the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. Surely this made the journey less arduous for them. And we see that Jacob didn't leave anything behind, but also took all their livestock and goods which they had gained in the land of Canaan. This is a, a complete and total move to Egypt. Then notice the language in the next couple of verses. And came into Egypt... Jacob and all his seed with him. That's the word used there, seed. Uh, it says offspring in the ESV, descendants in the New King James. Seed, and that, that includes sons, daughters, grandsons, and granddaughters. Whether or not we are to understand that Jacob had more than one daughter in Dinah is uh, debated. It could be that the reference to daughters is simply a standard formula used for writing. It isn't to be taken in the most literal sense. But then notice the last sentence of verse 7. All his seed he brought with him into Egypt. So, two times in, in two verses, seed is mentioned. And it's in reference to all of Jacob's family. What's, what's the theology of this? That the sons of Israel have become the seed of Abraham. See, up until this point, the seed was always viewed as a single person. Whether it's Noah, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now the seed has expanded... The plan is taken on a new shape, and the whole house of Israel is considered the seed. They're the seed people. As one pastor observes, this means that the whole house of Israel is the heir of the Abrahamic covenant. They as a whole are the ones who have the privileges and responsibilities that come with being the seed. That is, they have the privileges of drawing near to God, but they also have the privilege and responsibility of giving their lives for the life of the world. They are the priests of the nations. They are the shepherds who have the responsibility of leading the nations into God's presence. This fact is further emphasized by the highly stylized genealogy that we find in verses 8 to 25. I won't be doing a verse-by-verse -verse examination of all of these names. If such details interest you, there are a number of commentaries which go into some measure of detail about the names listed here and what they might mean and so forth. Again, this is the highly stylized genealogy. And we can see this in the names that are given, the numbers listed in relation to the names, and the point that the writer is seeking to make. Uh, similarly, the, Jesus, uh, the, excuse me, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 works in uh, a similar way. It isn't a literal genealogy, in a manner of speaking, as some generations were skipped in order for the numbering system to balance correctly. There's something similar going on here. This shouldn't cause us to question the veracity or reliability of the text, but to simply understand that the genealogy serves a different purpose than just conveying a strict family tree. Simple fact of the matter is that some of the people listed here hadn't even been born yet, 
but their names are still given. But there are some great-grandsons listed here, but the purpose was to get the right numbers. Some of these descendants were still in Jacob's loins, we might say. Not so unlike the argument we find in Hebrews 7, 9, and 10 of how Levi paid tithe to Melchizedek via Abraham. So what are some things that we should know in particular about this genealogy? Well, first, Leah's sons are listed first, totaling 33. Then the sons by Zilpah, her handmaiden, total 16, which is basically half of the number of Leah. That's a pattern we'll see again momentarily. But 33 plus 16 equals 49. And 7 times 7 is Hebraic. It's biblical math. But we have the sons of Rachel, who is specifically called Jacob's wife. She receives that special designation. How many sons are attributed to her? 14, 2 times 7. Then from Bilhah, Rachel's handmaiden, seven sons are born. That makes for a total of 21, 3 times 7. And did you happen to notice who gets mentioned two times in these verses that we haven't heard about in quite a while? Laban. His name is mentioned in verses 18 and 25 in relation to the respective handmaidens he gave to his daughters for wedding gifts. Why might Laban be mentioned here? Well, as one scholar notes, the resurrection of Laban's name momentarily throws us into the past. It takes us back from a Jacob with 70 kin to a Jacob with no kin. First time Jacob left Beersheba in the land of Canaan, he was entirely alone. Now he leaves Beersheba and Canaan with 66 persons, with 66 souls. So in verse 26, 66 persons are mentioned, and then 70 in verse 27. Why the difference? Well, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh aren't counted in the 66 necessarily, but then when they're added, the total is 70, and that probably is the best way to take it. The number 66 uh, seems to indicate a new man, as man was created on the sixth day, and the sons of Israel picture a new humanity. The number 70 is significant because it matches the table of nations listed in Genesis 10, the descendants of Noah that made up the nations of the world. So the burgeoning nation of Israel is being set forth as a new world and a people for the world, even a world in seed form. One other aspect of the genealogy uh, worth noting is uh, the specific mention of Benjamin's sons. Uh, they total 10, which is 2 times 5, 5 being the number of power and authority. And so he's being, trade, being portrayed as the royal son. Uh, you'll also recall the 5 times portions he received on previous occasions, symbolizing a similar point. And the number of 5 appears again in chapter 47 and verse 1. So, so this new nation... The seed nation goes to Egypt, and where do they get planted? Oh, that's what we find out in the next section, in verses uh, in chapter 46, 28 to chapter 47 and verse 6. Now, notice whom Jacob sent ahead to Joseph in verse 28, Judah, to show the way before him into Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. So Judah has emerged as the mediator, the reconciler, and the reunifier. He's, kind of, he's been the leader of the brothers. Joseph had preceded Jacob in Egypt, and now Judah precedes him into Goshen. And the name Goshen is mentioned some seven times in this section. The name Goshen might even mean drawing near. Verses 29 and 30 record the reunion of Jacob and Joseph, of father and son at last. Joseph prepared his chariot 
and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And it could even be that he was so anxious to see Jacob that he actually got his chariot ready himself instead of ordering someone to do it. And the language is interesting here that, that Joseph presents himself to his father. That has a certain air of formality about it. Almost as if he's presenting himself and his work and his kingdom to Jacob. This isn't so unlike what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. Christ puts all the enemies under his feet, the last enemy being death, and then he presents the kingdom to his father. See, the story of Joseph is the Christ story. But then Joseph falls upon his father's neck and weeps a good while, reunited at last. And in verse 30, Israel confesses that he's ready to die. He's seen Joseph alive. He's witness to his resurrection and he can die in peace. God's promise not being lost, but continuing on through this son. The covenant continues so Jacob can die a happy death. We might even be reminded of Simeon's statement in Luke 2 after, taken, after having taken the Christ child into his arms and blessing him. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation of the Gentiles and for your glory to your people Israel. Verses 31 to 34, Joseph lays out the plan for visiting Pharaoh and what they are to say. And then we see the plan executed in verses 1 through 6 using nearly identical language. And what are some things we should note? Well, why would, why would Joseph do this? Well, partly because his brothers needed, know, needed to know how to speak to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He's giving them lessons in courtly manners. Some years ago, uh, some friends of mine were part of a high school basketball team that won back-to-back state championships in Tennessee. And uh, the first time they went to the state tournament in Murfreesboro, the coaches, took, the coaches took some time to teach the players how to speak to the media. Uh, to the various newspaper and TV reporters that would be covering the tournament. You know, so they, they prep them ahead of time so they know how to conduct themselves, uh, giving cogent answers and so forth. Well, that, that's part of what Joseph's doing here. But also there's intentionality for this new nation of Israel to be separate from Egypt and Goshen and to not simply be absorbed into the Egyptian culture. And to a degree, this is a means of preservation, and it's needed. As we've seen, Israel's sons haven't been unaffected by living in Canaan, as evidenced in some of their choices and actions. The moving out of Canaan wasn't an entirely negative thing, we might say. Likewise, it's good for Israel to keep some distance from the Egyptians as well, even as it will protect them in the future. But also, by living in a separate area, Joseph and his family are indicating that they're not there for political or social gain. They're not going to attempt to overthrow the Egyptian government or anything like that. Now, they're going to attend to their flocks and their herds and pretty much keep to themselves. Now, why the shepherds were considered, why shepherds were considered an abomination to the Egyptians isn't really known. Uh, the Egyptians were dominantly an agricultural society, but also fastidious as a people, and some suggest that shepherds were associated with rudeness and barbarism. But this separation also reminds us of the meal Joseph hosted for his brothers back in chapter 43, where they sat at separate tables because to eat with the Hebrews was an abomination. As a bit of an aside, there might even be an interesting echo here of the tension between Abel the shepherd and Cain the farmer. So Joseph takes five brothers with him before Pharaoh, five being a number of power, and representative of Israel's power, but willingly submitting to Pharaoh. 
And Joseph leads the way. He goes in first and tells Pharaoh about his father, brothers, and their flocks and herds and all that they possess, settling in Goshen. The five brothers are presented, declare their occupation as shepherds, and request the land of Goshen as instructed. And Pharaoh replies to their request to Joseph and gives them the best of the land, the land of Goshen. Pharaoh is a better Laban. He even offers the brothers jobs as the royal shepherds, putting his livestock in their care. Everything goes according to plan. And the fact that Joseph and his family are shepherds means what? Well, that they're kings, or at least that they're kings in training, but are in a position in which they can shepherd the nations. Well, that brings us to Jacob's meeting with Pharaoh in chapter 47, verses 7 to 10, which may arguably be the center point of all chapters 46 and 47. There's a nice chiastic structure to these verses, um, as you can even see in, in the notes that might be before you. So you have the arrival in Pharaoh's presence in verse 7. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks about Jacob's life. Jacob tells about his life. Jacob blesses Pharaoh and then departure from Pharaoh's presence. And you quickly notice that Jacob blesses Pharaoh twice. Is this merely a form of cordial greeting or parting? Hardly. Consider the position calling that God has given to Jacob. He is Joseph's father and heir of the Abrahamic covenant, and he's fulfilling the vocation to be a blessing to the nations by blessing the king of the greatest nation of the day. In many respects, Pharaoh has blessed Jacob and his family, and now Pharaoh is the one to be blessed by Jacob, the leader of Israel, the high priest, if you will, of the priestly people. From what's reported in the text, Pharaoh submits to the blessing. But consider how strange this looks from a certain perspective. The younger Pharaoh, ruler of the world's superpower, is blessed by the elderly, sojourning, homeless Jacob, but this king submits to a lowly shepherd. Kind of points to other things, points forward to other things, doesn't it? And the fact that Pharaoh does is evidence of his faith, even which is a fact we've considered in past weeks. Pharaoh asked Jacob, asked Jacob about his life, the days of his life, and Jacob responds, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Apparently, this would have been somewhat impressive to Egyptians who thought a lifespan of 110 was long. But notice how Jacob couches it in the language of sojourning. That gives an, impresence, uh, that gives an impression of traveling, of not really being settled, not really having a homeland that is truly home. Certainly that's been Jacob's experience, as it was his father Isaac's and his grandfather Abraham's. And recall all the way back in chapter 25, when the writer first describes Jacob, he states that he was a complete man dwelling in tents. Jacob's tent dwelling didn't mean he stayed inside all day playing video games or reading books. No, he was, he was looking... You know, he, he was a shepherd after all. Rather, he rightly identified with the, the sojourning nature required of the covenant faithful. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, who desi- whose designer and builder is God. Jacob desired another homeland, a better country, even a heavenly one. And while 130 years sounds like a long time to live to us, Jacob's father, Isaac, lived to be 180, and Abraham, 175. So perhaps Jacob views his years uh, as being few by comparison. His don't match theirs. As it turns out, Jacob would live another 17 years after this. 
And as an interesting aside, Joseph was likely 17 years old when he was sold into Egypt, then didn't see Jacob for some 20 years, and now they'll be together for another 17 years. But how did Jacob describe his life? Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Because Jacob just a grumpy, bitter old man. What kind of faithful testimony is this before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt? You know, is Jacob hurting his witness? No, he's actually providing the relatively young in the faith Pharaoh with some important lessons about the life of faith. Jacob's mention of declining lifespans is testimony of the effects of sin in the world and that death is coming quicker and quicker to men. Jacob's days have been evil, not only because of shortened life due to sin, but also because sin has resulted in a life of intense struggle, a wrestling match, one in which Jacob's been engaged even before he was born. Jacob's life has hardly been easy. He wrestled with his brother Esau and then his uncle Laban and also dealt with wives wrestling with each other over him. He's wrestled with his sons, Reuben, who tried to seize authority by sleeping with Bilhah, and then Simeon and Levi, who caused him trouble in their attack on the Shechemites. His beloved wife and queen, Rachel, has died, and he endured over 20 years under the belief that Joseph was dead, only to find out that he'd been sold into slavery in Egypt, a fact kept from him by 10 of his sons. His life has never ceased to be one of wrestling. Jacob isn't a bitter old man here, but a man of faith who's declaring that a life that to live a life as one of God's people in this world necessarily entails conflict because of sin. Jacob is letting Pharaoh know what the life of faith involves. And the fact that Pharaoh is blessed by Jacob again seems to indicate that Pharaoh accepts what Jacob says, a further sign of the king's faith. And don't miss the fact that Jacob still blesses Pharaoh, which further testifies that Jacob's life though evil throughout, has been a life worth living, the one God called him to live in service to him, and the covenant, the life he was set apart to live, even before he was born. Well, verses 11 and 12 close out our section for this morning. And there we read that Joseph gave his fathers and brothers possession in the land of Egypt, in the best land. The word for possession is the same word used in chapter 23 of Abraham buying the property for Sarah's burial. Jacob and his sons owned this land in Egypt, in this land of Goshen, later known as Ramses. Then verse 12, And Joseph provided his fathers, his brothers, and all his father's house with bread according to the number of their little ones. Joseph is still the bread of life, the source of life in the story. Even as God will provide the man in the wilderness for all the children of Israel, and both were fulfilled in Jesus, the true bread of life, the bread from heaven. And one point of further interest, in the account before us today, the tales of the patriarchs in Canaan are now concluded. And the nation of Israel, comprised of the 66, go down into Egypt in embryo form. Israel is planted in the land of Goshen. And there they will grow in the years to come until the nation of Israel is birthed through the bloody doorway of Passover. God's plans and promises are continuing, even if the ways he brings them about seem strange or surprising to his people. Although we've touched on a few items already, what, what are some specific principles that are set before us in our faith in this text? Well, first, 
We can set aside our fears and find encouragement in the God who is also our Emmanuel. Certainly this is fulfilled in Jesus, but it continues to be true in the promised presence of the Holy Spirit. God is with us wherever He leads us, and that should be a great comfort to us. And let us be sure to also recognize and take to heart that our God is a God who goes down with us and even before us into death and the grave. Wasn't that vividly portrayed for us in Jesus' death and being laid in the tomb? He doesn't call us to go where he himself hasn't first gone. Yes, so present is our Savior with us that he doesn't abandon us as our lives move toward the grave. No, he's there right beside us each step of the way. And surely no closer than in the moment when we give up our last breath in this life since he's done the same. But as surely as he goes down with us, then our faith can rest in the fact that we will go up again, that we will be raised with him for he goes before us in the resurrection. As Paul wrote to the Romans, we heard earlier, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Secondly, let us recognize once again the life of wrestling to which all of us are called. And while all of us are called to this, let us be cognizant of the fact that the life of wrestling that each of us is called to is unique to the calling the Lord has for each of us. Yes, we're we're all called to wrestle, but the manifestations of that will vary widely. And it's for faith to recognize that and to accept the calling God has given to you and to no one else. You know, don't, don't look around and wonder why God has called you to something and another person to something else. In other words, don't be content, discontent with the wrestling match the Lord has called you to engage in. You're called to a life of wrestling with different sins, different circumstances. And while there's certainly overlap of experience, what the Lord calls you to is what He calls you to. Is it a difficult marriage? Frail health? Difficult children? A lot of children? Or maybe a few all bunched together? Will the Lord have you to wrestle with your job or calling? A difficult boss. Are you called to wrestle with classmates you don't particularly like or the neighbors that live next door? Maybe your classes at school are particularly challenging for one reason or another. Maybe you feel like every single area of your life is a wrestling match right now and there's no peace to be found anywhere. Maybe you would confess with Jacob, my days are evil. Well, if that's the case... That's your experience. May your faith be reminded of the first point. God is with you. And he's called you to this. So be encouraged that he will strengthen you for it. Come to him who is the bread of life. Come to his table. His table of peace. And find sustenance for the sojourning and wrestling here believing he will use this bread as he has promised. Don't despair. 
Don't give up. Keep wrestling. Persevere by faith to the end, knowing a life of wrestling is still a life full of blessing. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and pray that your spirit would impress it ever more upon our hearts, that it might bear faithful fruit in our lives and obedience to your word. And we thank you for your table and for these signs of bread and wine. Hear us and answer, we pray, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen.